I'm not here to poke holes in suspended disbelief. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Thou Merkin merchant. Who gives a fuck? Oh my god, we're just gonna start calling you Damien Yeltsin's cool boards. Well, you know, uh, I really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice, and uh, it's not as cold as back home, and the soil is a lot better. So yeah, sure, I think we're gonna settle. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. You will, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Good day, sir. If Siskel thought it was empty-headed plebeian trash, he was probably <laughs> really good at groove on it. <laughs> because cannibalism and murder. Pull back just a little bit and build walls to keep out the redheads. Authorial intent doesn't exist. Some people stand up and wipe their butts. Some people stay seated and wipe their butts. Like it just. This is a geek history of time, where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history and English teacher here in Northern California. And uh, as part of my professional responsibilities uh, on on my site, I don't know what the acronym is they use for it on yours, uh, but we have non-instructional duty service. Oh, we call that comes adjunct out of, duty. Okay, yeah, that was in my old site. It was adjunct duty too, but it's NIDS at ours. Which, as a 40k player. <laughs> Every time that comes up, nids means tyranids, which are a horde of chitinous alien semi-insect, you know, critters that devour everything before them. And I can't help but kind of chuckle darkly at that. Hmm. But in any event, um, one of the nids that I have signed up for uh, this year was uh, there's several dances over the course of the year. And uh, we had one uh, just a couple of nights ago. And uh, I signed up to chaperone it. And at my old site, because of the circumstances of my commute, I, I was depending on train transportation. And so if I stayed late enough to over to, to chaperone an after school dance, it, it would mean having to drive a very long way into work and then drive a very long way late at night home. So I just never did it. I always opted for like track meets or, mm-hmm. you know, soccer games or other stuff. And I have now chaperoned two dances so far this year. And um, it's interesting to see the arc of, of how things have changed. Um, one of the things that has been constant is that, uh, when you put middle school boys and girls into a social setting instead of an academic one, the differences in relative maturity level become starkly illuminated. Hmm. The girls are all 13. Like hmm. uh, to, to borrow a phrase from, from a, a friend of mine, uh, the gr- the girls are all 13 and they're effectively going to be 13 for another couple of years. The boys are split uh, like the sixth graders. It's like 70, 30, 70% of them are still in the fourth grade. 
and 30% of them have, have entered puberty and are, Mm -hmm. are starting to, to behave that way. And then by the time you hit the eighth grade, uh, it's like 80, it's like 2080 the other way. Like, you know, 20% of them are still not quite ready for prime time. And Mm -hmm. 80% of them are, how you doing? You know, in in this in this remarkably clueless and and shy, like weird, like it's it's clear they really desperately want to try to be getting there, but they're terrified. <laughs> and yeah, I, I I got to spend uh two hours because I, I wasn't going to go into the gymnasium because COVID. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, thank you. So I, I was outside in the in the outdoor area where, you know, kids would go inside and dance and then they'd come out and, and you know, socialize and then they'd go back inside and whatever. And so, yeah, um, it was it's it's a trip. Middle school is a weird parallel dimension. <laughs> and yeah, I so that's that was that was my that was my weird experience for the week was was watching that all happen side by side uh for a couple of hours the other night how about you uh let's see i'm damien harmony i'm a high school u.s history and latin teacher up here in northern california um i actually uh had something happen this week that hasn't happened in i don't remember how long uh at least two administrations at my site okay Um, i was evaluated (laughs) like I've not been evaluated in years. How years. okay, stop. Sure. How how did you pull that off? Well, the, <laughs> the a while back, I was evaluated by an administrator who I don't know what she was doing, thinking or trying to prove and I can't figure out what it is. But uh we have a, a 1 to 4 scale, 1 being the best, 4 being the worst, okay? Um, and so it's like golf, you want the lowest score possible and there's six different criteria. And, and so one of the criteria was, uh, has expertise in the subject in which he's teaching. And another one is along the lines of, uh, you know, can effectively plan or, or whatnot. Okay. So this, this administrator so many years ago, um, God, I don't quite remember when. I want to say it was like 2012. It was a long time ago. So maybe maybe earlier, maybe later. But she came in, evaluated me for my Latin class. Um, and then she came in a second time and evaluated me for my U.S. history class at that time. Because that's, that's how long ago it was. I was teaching U.S. history again, I think. Holy crap. Okay. Yeah. And she sat in amongst the kids. It was great, you know, and, and all that. And then uh, she she asked the questions that, you know, administrators ask, like, you know, how does how do you know that Mr. Harmony is evaluating right now? How do you know he's doing blah, blah, blah? You know, does he assign this kind of stuff as homework normally? Uh, What does he do to check it, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. And then she didn't really ask me any questions. So she's just kind of going based on what random kids said, which. okay, but there's things in our contract that say you can't do that yeah weird flex but okay yeah um weird approach but uh not okay and so (laughs) he you know and then we have our meeting and she's given me a four as far as subject matter expertise 
And I looked at her, and it's one of many fours that she gave me. I got fours and threes across the board. I said, uh, was there a riot in the class that I was unaware of? No. <laughs> like, then how are nice. you granting me a three or a four? She said, well, a lot of students were were uh, didn't know whether or not you would collect their warm-up that day. I said, right. That's true. That way more of them will do it. And she's like, no, they need to know when you're going to collect it. I said, you don't remember Skinner where it's inconsistent rewarding increases the behavior you don't remember that that's like the basics of teaching school yeah and she said well you know i still think that they should know i said you might think that but it is proven otherwise and it's good teaching to do it that way and she said well and also you were calling on people like how were you recording their responses i said you didn't see me tallying points when they would answer things well And she's like, well, no, I said, and I held up the cards to her and there's tally marks underneath, you know, for participation points. I'm like that part. And you didn't ask me that before you evaluated me. Like before you started giving me scores. Okay. And what's this about me not having any expertise? Uh, And she says, well, you know, I, I don't really, I said, I'm one of two people on this campus with a master's degree in history. Tell me who knows more than I do about the subject that I'm teaching at this campus right now. I said, I'm the only person in this district who knows this language that I'm teaching. You are not qualified to evaluate me on this language that I'm teaching because you don't know if I was terrible or good at it because you don't speak the language. That's how expert I am at this language that I am teaching, that I've been hired to teach by your boss. And, well, you know, I said, okay, well, I'm not signing this. I'm going to grieve it because it's completely wrong and you've done a terrible job. And, uh, and she's like, Oh, okay. And so I came back with a, with a rep and laid out, here's what I want you to do. Instead of me grieving it, this is your last chance. And she's like, no, I'm going to stick to what I've said here. I said, okay. So then I took it to the union hall and they were stunned. They're like, we've never seen anybody present us with a grievance. That's already completely filled out. Like, normally we have to, like, ask people for things. I said, well, I just I wanted to make sure we did it right. Like, I went to contract and I, you know, pulling parts yeah. and da da yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we grieved it. And the, the uh, administrator in charge of her, um, well, and then we grieved it. And then I told her, I went back to her one last time. I said, it has been filed. I'm more than happy to rescind it if you would just undo this evaluation. You just call it. And no, I'm going to stick to it. I said, okay, very good. So then my boss called me in like a week and a half later. He says, uh, we're just going to go ahead and undo that evaluation. I said, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> he said, so we're going to move everything from fours and threes over to twos. I said, that's not good enough for me. Um, you know, either undo the whole thing or redo it and do it right. And he said, and then he said, you know, he turned to my rep and he's like, um, you might want to talk to him about what's worth his energy or whatnot. And I was like, fair. So I did. And and they all agreed. And they're like, Damien, just you don't have to fight it all the way. You're like, you've already won. I was like, yeah, but what about the next person? And they're like, there's not going to be a next person. There's no way this is going to happen again. Like, OK, fine. So the next year, that same administrator, it's evaluation time. And he comes to me and he's like, how'd you like a five year? So in my district, if you if you are a good enough boy, you can get a five year. And it's it's based somewhat on the philosophy of the administrator. 
and mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. But essentially, the idea is if you give me a five year because, you know, I'm doing fine, then you can go and focus on people who actually need the help. OK, right. Because valuations are supposed to help you. They yes. really are. Um, and so that's the five year. So he gave me a five year and then he moved on to greener pastures. That VP was not a VP after that. Uh, he moved on to greener pastures. Uh, and then about five years later, a new administrator was, you know, he's like, okay, well, it's time to evaluate you. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, I just got done with the five year. Uh, so go ahead and evaluate me. Uh, and then I said, or you could just give me another five year. So, okay. All right. <clears throat> so I went into this evaluation right. and I said, uh, you know, I'm happy to be evaluated. I think that's great. I love a chance to show off. Uh, and I mean, I genuinely do approach it from that perspective. I said, I love a chance to show off. Um, and so I sat down with my VP and I said, okay, so in this evaluation meeting, uh, is this the first evaluation meeting you've, you've, or is this the first year you've done evaluations? Yes. Okay, cool. Well, um, I think it's fair that I train you on how to do an evaluation. So we'll, I'll, we'll schedule my meeting the, the soonest. And then I'll use that to teach you how to do evaluations. So I came in and sat down with that as my approach. And I said, okay, Our go ahead and tell moves. me what, <laughs> well, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, well, and, yeah. you know, I want him to be within contract. And so, uh, so I did, I came in, I sat down and, and, and told him, you know, here's, here's this, here's this. So, you know, go ahead and tell me what you need to tell me. He does. I said, okay. And, and now I'll present my stuff that, that you need to be aware of. Um, and so I did. And, uh, and I said, okay, well now let's go over this list of ways in which I'll be evaluated. And I just start going through them. And I was like, you know, there's this, there's this. And then I said, expertise. I said, I defy anyone on this campus to to show more expertise than I do when I teach my class. Um, and he just starts laughing, <laughs> which is exactly ex- the the response I wanted. I, there are yeah. people who are amazing teachers on my campus. They absolutely mm. are. And there are people who are very knowledgeable about history. They absolutely are. I, I do not mean to diminish them by any kind of comparison with me, to be honest. But I know my shit really well, too. Yeah. So he comes in and evaluates me and he um, he he sits down and we have a policy um, at our school because of a number of issues of violence, people coming onto campus, et cetera. Um, and then so the policy is we're not going to increase security. We're not going to actually do anything to help the buildings be more secure or uh, or provide mental health services so that these problems get headed off but we are going to ask you to lock your doors. So that's, that's the thing we do. So that means that when kids come in tardy and they come in tardy quite often, because we don't really have a tardy policy worth a damn. um, Yeah. When they come in tardy, I am in the middle of lecturing and I just, I've learned to just keep flowing and keep and go open the door. Hey, I'm glad you're here and close the door and then keep going and da, 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 da. Right. He became the doorman during my evaluation because he sat closest to the door. <laughs> um, and it was and there was one moment where I was talking about busing in the 1970s in, in Boston mm. and how, you know, that turned into actual riots. And I said, yeah, it was about 1971. And I turned to my VP, who's probably your age, I think probably younger than me even. 
Um, okay. He certainly is healthier than me, so I can't tell his. Oh age. yeah, right. And uh, and so I, I said, well, as you know, I'm going to say Jones, uh, Mr. Jones. You remember you were about 13 at that time, right? And he's just image conscious enough to be bothered by that, but he's also like been pointed out in front of everybody by a guy who just winked at him. And so he has to. <laughs> so it was good. It was fun. Power move. <laughs> uh, oh my subversive. God. I, I will certainly claim subversive. There's there's some big dick energy going on right there. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, holy crap, man. I love evaluation. Once once I have permanent yeah. status, I aspire oh, yeah. to that level of, of fuckery. It just you you crap. treat it like it's a chance to show off, and you treat it as a chance to show off not just in front of your boss, but in front of your kids too. That's what a lot of people okay, forget. That works. You you are the master of your domain. You know mm. what you're doing. That's not ever going to be a problem. Yeah. And your your students will see that you being the master of your domain means also over administrators who walk into the room. That's you fair. work a room, you know, and so mm. I oh, I love it. I absolutely love I do like showing off to adults and I do like showing off to the kids. And I like yeah, the well, idea of, of the camaraderie that brings in uh, through my mischief. So anyway, uh, yeah, very cool. Long story, way too long. Um, I got evaluated. I'm sure it went well. I'll find out to, um, on Monday of this okay. next week uh, what he thought because um, we have our, our post eval meeting. So cool. Yeah, very so cool. It should be fun. Yeah. So, um, I'm I'm total total departure from what we were just talking about. Um, if you could name, like, right off the top of the top of your head, if I if I said to you, name for me a 1980s fantasy film. What what is the first title that comes to mind? The money pit. There's no way that anybody could buy a house that big on his. No. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Good. That's, you know what? <laughs> yeah. Score a point uh, for you right there. That's, that's not wrong. Yeah. No. Um, Wall Street. The guy went to yeah, jail. No. I mean, there come on. When's that yeah. ever going to fucking happen? Yeah. yeah. No. Um, okay. So in reality, a fantasy film from the 80s. Yeah. First, First one thing comes, comes to mind to is Beastmaster to be honest. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because to me, Conan doesn't, I would say Conan, but Conan doesn't feel fantasy to me. There's monsters oh. and shit in it. And I know that you've talked about high fantasy, low fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, what yeah, have yeah. You. And that's a decidedly lower fantasy. And, and to me, it just feels very, very, it, there, there's no like fantasticalness to it. It's all really grim. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so so because it's because it's grim dark fantasy, mm -hmm. it doesn't yeah. it doesn't register in the same way as Beastmaster does. To me, yeah. Okay. No, that's yeah. that's hey, that's meaningful. I yeah. you know. Um so what what's what's interesting is um I'm gonna be I'm gonna talk about Beastmaster here, mm -hmm. but Beastmaster and remarkably Conan the Barbarian uh are not uh, the films that started me down this particular rabbit hole. Okay. The film that started me down this rabbit hole was Krull. Oh, good one. Now, here's the I thing. I showed that to my kids recently. I know you did. And yeah. the reason I know you did is because 
Kroll showed up in my Facebook feed twice in the same week. Whoa. Twice in the same week, which, which like if I had a nickel uh, for every time Kroll showed up in my Facebook feed, I mean, I'd only have two nickels, <laughs> but, it'd be, but it would be weird that they showed up that close together. Right. To paraphrase a, a, a meme, but you know, it, it's kind of notable for a 40 year old movie. Uh, and it's even more notable for a B grade fantasy yeah. flick like Cross. So, so the first time, <laughs> I you know what? Okay. Anyway, so so the first time it showed up. This is important because the first time it showed up, a high school friend of mine uh, answered a Facebook question about bad movies deserving a remake, mm-hmm. and he said Crawl. Oh. And and I I had to step in and tell him he's fucking wrong crawl is is awesome <laughs> you you know like no it's it's an overlooked classic you just have to be in the right frame of mind for it wow the second time i'm was sorry hang you. on back it up a second yeah how does it feel to be as wrong as the person in 2001 <laughs> in the summer who was like the biggest story in 2001 is going to be shark attacks how does it feel to be that wrong? <laughs> I, you know what? Here's no, dude. It's <laughs> anyway. The second time, second time you showed a truly deep cut image from the movie, uh, as show? part of a Facebook post, because because you were showing you were showing the movie to your kids. Mm-hmm. You said, "What is this from?" Mm. Was the question that you asked, and my answer was. And I and I stand by this. An underappreciated classic is what it's from. Oh, it was from the web scene, huh? Yeah, yeah. It was the it was the crystalline spider scene yes. with, the, with the witch in the center of the web and all that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and next in my notes because we've already kind of done this, but next in my notes I have in brackets argument over the merits of Krull as a work of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I knew we were going to go there. You know, um, and and the thing is, there are there are massive gaping gaping holes in the plot. Like like as a as a work of as a work of literature, it stinks on ice. Like if if you look at if you just analyze the script, yeah, no, it's it's a stinker. <laughs> but visually, it is it is really remarkable, and there is some remarkable stop-motion animation that goes on in it uh specifically in the spider scenes like the 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 puppetry and everything that was done for for that set of effects yeah um and yeah it's it's there there it has an awful lot going for it sadly the script is not one of the things that it has <laughs> going for it that's very true um I mean, it does have you know, Liam Neeson but, but in it. There, there was. It does have Liam Neeson in it, uh, in really heavy fucking makeup. Yeah, <laughs> in in prosthetics, no less. Yeah. Um, and and a whole a whole slew of of uh you know workaday, uh journeyman uh British science fiction actors from that era who you look at and you're like, wait, I've seen that guy before. Well, yes, because you've watched a British science fiction film. From his time period, yes, you've seen him. He's in fucking everything, like you know, it, yeah, yeah. So as much fun as it is to debate the quality of a B grade fantasy movie, 
Um, that's that's not actually what I'm here to talk to you about. Okay. The thing is, it struck me in in the middle of of making my declarative statements about its about its genius that Kroll was only one of a glut mm-hmm. of fantasy movies that came out in the early to mid eighties. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because before that period and then after that period, they were pretty thin on the ground. Mm. Was it because sci-fi was taking up uh, most of the shelf space? Well, even sci-fi wasn't really taking up that much shelf space. So Star Wars opened in 1977, right? Right. And for a couple of years after that, there there was just this this flood of science fiction adventures that tried to ride the money train. Yeah. Um, Laser Blast in 1978, mm-hmm. in which a teenage loner. Uh, I guess somewhere in Arizona or Nevada. It's a desert, desert I watched, setting. I watched that movie on public TV on KOFY TV 20, Stockton, Sacramento, San Francisco. Yeah. It was in San Francisco. We had two channels that did um, syndicated stuff. Okay. You know? Yeah. KOFY was the poor man's version okay. of Channel 44. Okay. And so it got all the B grade shit. I watched yeah, yeah. that movie and could not find the name of it. Cause I watched it when I was like eight. Yeah. Right. And it like there's an amulet burns into his chest yeah, and shit. Yeah, yeah. And he leaves, like, leaves like puts a, on like a, a tube like a scab, like a plaque. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. And and I watched that movie when I was eight. And I, you know, it receded to the back of my head and whatnot because yeah. it's just such Damn. a terrible movie. It, yeah. The first time I saw shit, such a piece of shit. <laughs> well, and and which is actually germane to the story. Um, the first time that I saw its title was because I saw a list of the 50 worst movies ever made. And it was number 48. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So I okay. remember watching that movie and mm-hmm. like it was just vaguely cool enough i mean he did have a laser for an arm yeah um yeah but wow it's so funny that you would pick that exact one oh well yeah so teenage loner finds an alien energy weapon and gradually turns into a monster and goes on a killing spree yes is the is the summary in in one compound sentence yeah that's your elevator pitch yeah uh battle star galactic in 1978 okay We've talked about this one on its, on its own. Uh, it was yep. a clear attempt to reverse engineer Star Wars Gold Mine. Mm-hmm. Buck Rogers in the 25th century in 79. You're talking TV shows here, though. Well, no, I'm not, because oh. the pilot for Buck Rogers got a theatrical release before becoming a TV series. Wow. Six months later. Okay. So, and that's 79. And then the TV series premiered either late 79 or early in 1980. Um, and in a Gil side Gerard note, one, yeah, Gil Gerard. Wow, that far yeah. back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in a side note, I have to say that seeing Aaron Gray in a shiny leotard made you, made me pretty sure I was straight at the age of five. Okay, uh, just you know, for, formational memories. Uh, the Black Hole in 1979. Mm-hmm. Disney's live action division tried to jump on the cash in train with possibly the scariest movie that Slim Pickens ever did voice work for. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, uh, Maximilian Schell 
uh, was in it, and he chewed on all the scenery um, as 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 the lead bad guy. Okay. And then in 1980, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, mm. uh, when John Boy Walton uh, went looking for space mercenaries to help protect his peaceful farming planet in a story that's a mashup of Star Wars and the Seven Samurai, which is interesting because Kurosawa was a foundational you know, uh, influence on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really fucking meta. Um, and then on, on top of that, also, by the way, uh, George Pappard. Oh, wow. Uh, has, Love it has, when a plan comes a part, together. Yeah, he, he has a part in it. And again, choose manfully on the scenery. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so fantasy movies followed largely on the back of the wave. Mm-hmm. Um, in 77, which is which is at the front of the wave, we see that there's Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. And the Rankin Bass version of The Hobbit. Uh, Ralph Batchy's Wizards is animated, correct? Yes. Okay, yeah. They killed yeah. Fritz. Yeah, yeah. Got it. You bastards. Yeah. Right. Um. So Wizards and the Rankin Bass Hobbit came out in '77. Oh wow. Um. But they're they're. I don't even want to say they're leading indicators because they were kind of swallowed up in the wave of SF stuff. Mm-hmm. And the trappings of science fiction. Uh, seemed to be part of the magic as far as producers and develop development people were concerned. Mm-hmm. And so it took a few years for them to start reaching farther afield for the answer to how to make big money on escapism. Right. Okay. okay. Now, Bakshi is also known for directing an animated film of The Lord of the Rings, uh, which his version is a fairly book accurate adaptation of The Fellowship of the Ring and kind of goes into part of the two towers. Does it have a similar animation style to the Rankin Bass? No. no okay. It's very different. Oh, okay. Uh he he worked with a lot of rotoscope stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's really easy to tell um and, and there was there, he he got he he was he was an experimentalist. Bakshi did did you know push the limits on a lot of stuff. And so all of the uh, the heroes, the the nine mm-hmm. walkers, the the fel- the fellowship, um, are all classically animated figures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's really clear. You you can tell how he was working from living models on the on the animation, or how his animators were working from living models on the animation. But the uh, ring wraiths and all of the orcs and all of the forces of darkness. Mm-hmm are done right they were yeah very heavily rotoscoped Mm -hmm. and so there's this very stark visual difference between them and like i get what he was going for but but it always turned me off personally uh because it was it was just it was too jarring and Many of his aesthetic choices about the way the way he portrayed characters and and costuming and design that kind of stuff just didn't didn't match up with the image in my own head and it was just it never worked for me. Was that the but one? It was 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 that the one that had Anthony Daniels in it and John Hurt? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because John Hurt yeah. was Aragorn and Anthony Daniels was an elf. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, you didn't think that that had the same kind of aesthetic as as the the Hobbit, the the Bank and Rask, Lord of the Rings. No, oh, dramatically okay. different. Dramatically different. Okay. Um, I hold the rank and best version of the Hobbit responsible for me being interested in Japanese animation. Oh, really? Because of because of the the style. Of okay. of the illustration and in the in the design stuff. Okay. Um whereas Bakshi's stuff is very clearly very rooted in the Western tradition of, you know, Warner Brothers and Disney and all that kind of stuff. Um, I wonder if I'm just like because I'm having trouble separating the two. Now grant you, I'm significantly younger than you are. Um, but also Fuck you. And and the the Dwimmerlack you rode in on, God. <laughs> um, but also, I'm wondering if I'm mostly just seeing the colors in my memory because the colors that could were, be. Were so, yeah, I bet yeah. you that's what it is. That could be because Frodo seems to have roughly the same auburny color hair in my memory in both different yeah, style, some, different style. Some... Um, like in one of them, he yeah. has a bowl cut, and in another one, yeah. it's a little bit more seventies mullety. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But I bet you I it's the color. Saying okay. There. Yeah. It's so. probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um. So the so the the Bakshi version, notably, uh, was an influence on Peter Jackson when he made the two thousand one live action adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the process for for Bakshi's version of the film started in nineteen seventy five. Uh, the early production involved a script written by John Borman, which Bakshi shopped around in order to get it bought and then thrown out because he hated it. Um, I mentioned this because Borman's name is going to show up again very soon. Okay. Uh, now, this is clear evidence that there was an appetite for escapism of either ray gun or magic sword variety, but Star Wars showed up with spaceships and magic swords that weren't magic swords. Mm-hmm. And took all the wind out of fantasy sales for a couple of years with its runaway success. Okay, if if you get what I'm saying, yeah, um, yeah, it was it was science fictiony enough to not be fantasy, but it's really not science fiction. It is it is totally space fantasy, right? Is kind of the point I'm trying to make. But anyway, it oh, yeah. it 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 sucked the wind out of the room, sucked the air out of the room for any kind of straight up fantasy attempts. For a couple of years because because all the money's uh, in space stuff yeah all, all the money's in space stuff and like no no this worked we're going to duplicate this yeah is the is the risk averse approach of you know producers so yeah you never lose your job doing poorly what someone else succeeded at you lose your job yeah. taking risks yeah yeah now um, there's a film I have to mention here, uh, because if I don't, uh, Bishop O'Connell is never going to forgive me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I hate to do it. Um, it's a bellwether of things to come. Okay. It's a high fantasy story ripped straight out of somebody's D and D campaign. Um, it's entitled Hawk the Slayer and it came out in 1980. Oh yeah. The sequel Lady Hawk came after that. Oh, oh, you, you fucking apostate no no because then, no, then lady hawk the, is the third one of the trilogy was hudson hawk i fucking hate you so much right now <laughs> no 
Lady Hawk, which I'm going to get to, <laughs> is a really good movie. Okay. Yeah. Hawk the Slayer mm-hmm. stinks on ice. It is like we we just we just spent a couple of minutes debating about the weaknesses of the script mm-hmm. or agreeing on the weakness of the script of Krull. Right. No, no. No, my friend. Hawk the Slayer. So Jack Palance plays a fantasy version of Darth Vader. Jack Palance. Wow. Just proving that everybody has to pay a mortgage. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so Bishop and I watched this thing back in junior high school, completely cracked out of our minds on Mountain Dew and junk food at like two in the morning on a sleepover. And this movie was so bad, we discovered the concept behind Mystery Science Theater 3000 spontaneously about 15 minutes in. Oh, I wow. mean, it was just, it. do not watch this film. Okay. Like, just, no. It's, that's, it's so bad. Okay. That that being said, and I'm sure they're going to be they're going to be lists because opinion is always subjective. Sure, it, sure. Like this is objectively a bad film, but there I'm sure there are people <laughs> who love it beyond reason. It would for have whatever to be. for whatever yeah. reason of nostalgia. But um, you know that 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 said, this movie was on the rising edge of a wave that rose very very rapidly. Because in 1981, Excalibur opens on april 10th there's your john borman connection isn't it because uh-huh. he was a producer for that one yep yeah clash of the titans mm-hmm. opens on june 12th dragon slayer opens on june 26th the hell and on. time bandits opens on november 6th all in 1981 wow now <clears throat> two of these i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna synopsize kind of outside of discussion of the others time bandits Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is an adventure comedy in which a young boy named kevin living in a miserably neglectful home Mm -hmm. gets pulled into the hijinks of a crew of dwarfs who've stolen a map to holes in space time Uh, the dwarfs are using the holes to plunder their way through time pursued by the supreme being and manipulated by evil capital Mm -hmm. e because he's a character Mm -hmm. who wants to get hold of the map so he can overthrow the supreme being right both of those words capitalized it's a terry gilliam movie and a, and a comedy by terry gilliam so it's absurdist as all get out right and has some very pointed things to say about consumerism and greed but it's simultaneously very heartfelt and has an ambiguous but leaning toward happy ending it um, has one of my favorite lines in it and i use yeah. this sometimes when students answer things completely off the fucking wall Horse flesh is dead. That's not it. Okay. Well, um, shit, no, when be. I'll ask a kid, like, you know, what was one of the leading, leading causes of, you know, the Great Depression? And they say something along the lines of, um, you know, people liked movies. Okay. And I will say, and how long have you been a thief? Four foot one. Because it makes just as much goddamn sense. That's perfect. Yes. Oh my god. Okay. Favorite lines. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And I pantomime it too. So I lean down, and how long have you been a thief? And then I I look up. Four foot one. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I can't wait till I have permanent status. Okay. (laughs) Oh. 
Um, so, so it is, it is, um, broadly subversive in that it's, it's Terry Gilliam and he's satirizing everybody. Oh yeah. And, and because Terry Gilliam was part of the Monty Python group, Mm -hmm. um, it's a very John Cleese gets a job. Yeah. Well, one John Cleese (laughs) gets a job. All of the pythons got a job in it at some point, but, but, um, it's very episodic. Like they go from one vignette to another to another to another. Yeah, I mean the very structure of it is episodic. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 like an episode of Monty Python Slaying Circus, but they're all connected by a singular plot line. Right. Um, and so so it it is it is in kind of this one place as as a fantasy film, and then we have Dragon Slayer, mm-hmm. which is um about an apprentice wizard named Galen. Who in fucks an analog every dragon he can find, so he's the dragon's lair. Well done, but no, no. <laughs> uh, in a fant- this this takes place in a fantastical analog of sixth century Europe, uh, and he's on a quest to rescue a kingdom from the predations of a terrible dragon. And you'll get a kick out of this if you don't remember it. Vermithrax pejorative. No clue. The dragon's name is Vermithrax pejorative. It's it's I mean, I'm sure it's pseudo Latin, but it's yeah. it's presented as being like, no, no, the Romans named this vermithrax pejorative. It's it's essentially a Greek word, a Greek worm pejorative. Because thrax oh, okay. comes from Thracian. Uh, OK, without me looking too much, you know, okay. uh, and then vermi, uh, you know, vermicelli. Yeah. Um. So you get worms <clears throat> from that. Interesting. OK. okay. Okay. And then pejorative, obviously, the, the lesser. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, uh, so it's a very 70s plot line in that the mm-hmm. king, it turns out, has been making a great show of his daughter's name being included in the sacrificial virgin lottery. Oh, uh, but in okay. fact, she and the daughters of his favored nobles have been secretly spared in a ritual that's a sham of equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, furthermore, because this king is afraid Galen will fail and only piss the dragon off he arrests him at first until his daughter actually sacrifices herself she she pulls a fast one because she finds out that this has been going on and in a in a a fit of um righteousness uh mm-hmm. with without any concern for self-preservation uh she winds up having uh all of the tiles in the lottery replaced with her name mm. it's, 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 there's actually it's it's kind of a remarkable scene when the when the uh, you know, grand counselor who's doing the whole thing, you know, shows everybody this is the princess's name and he drops the tile into the big cauldron full of all the tiles and he stirs it around. And then he reaches in and he pulls one out and he stares at it for a second. <laughs> and then he reads the name out and the king says, that's down. Oh, no, you didn't stir it enough. Try again. And he stirs it again and pulls another one out and it's her name. And like, and then the princess stands up and has her no I had all of them removed and replaced with mine because I know that you've been lying to the people. And anyway, she dies um, okay. because it's it's a seventies plot line, right? Um, so the king then then begs Galen to go rescue his daughter, and Galen arrives to fight the dragon, finds that she's already dead. Now the dragon is slain, mm-hmm. and there's a deeply cynical scene of villagers uh, rushing to praise God for saving them when earlier in the film, a priest gets vaporized by Vermithrax uh, when he tries to defeat it with the power of prayer. Mm-hmm. 
uh, while the king rides up uh, and dismounts off of his horse, uh, climbs up onto the very dead corpse of the dragon to drive his sword into said corpse in front of his chosen noble witnesses. So, mm-hmm. you know, the king has delivered us. And so then Galen and Valerian, the female romantic lead, uh, find happiness by riding off away from all of it. They get on horses and they're like, all right, fuck this. We're going to go make a life someplace else. It's intensely heartfelt on the surface, but it's heavily dosed with cynicism. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the flip side. Say it again. This one was 81. Yeah. 81. When was Blade Runner? Uh, Oh, shit. We did 82? how many episodes about it? I want to say 82, yeah. Okay. Just interesting that in, in two movies in two years, you had Let's Go Out on the Lamb as kind yeah. of the end. So. Yeah. Um, so it's it's intensely heartfelt on the surface, and Galen is this very sensitive, I really want to be a wizard, I really desperately want to be a hero, but I'm you know, I I lack the confidence, you know, all right. all, that, all those tropes. Um, and it's, it's kind of, again, it's kind of time bandits. It's flip side because time bandits is on the surface, really, really cynical, but Mm -hmm. at its heart, it's very earnest and very heartfelt. Right. Um, it's also funny to note that British actor, Ralph Richardson appears in both movies, uh, in dragon slayer. He's Galen's mentor wizard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in time bandits, he plays the Supreme being. Just interesting side note there yeah so kevin from time bandits is a proto harry potter right uh and you know abusive family situation plucked off into a fantasy solution you know circumstance galen is a sensitive kind of hapless hero in the whiny kid is heroic figure mold of luke skywalker okay and the thing is excalibur um sorry with excalibur and clash of the titans mm-hmm. which are the other two big ones something happens with the leads and the stories they tell that i think is indicative of a trend so we have these these two films which mm-hmm. are in their own ways on their own levels both very deeply cynical right right um cuz cuz terry gilliam is pointing and laughing at everybody in the world and uh dragon slayer is very profoundly anti-establishment, right? Mm-hmm. Excalibur is straight up a retelling of the legend of King Arthur, um, right. very heavily emphasizing the Grail quest. In an interesting twist on Lamort d'Arthur, Guinevere and Lancelot only start their affair after they're accused of having one. So in the in the original. Mm-hmm. More to Arthur, um, you know, Guinevere and Lancelot start getting it on, and one of the Scotland brother, one of the Orkney brothers, uh, catches him. I don't remember which one it is. It's not Gawain, but it's one of his brothers. And there's accusations, and Lancelot proves proves her quote unquote innocence in a trial by combat, and it's like a, like a right. recurring thing. Well, in Excalibur there's a lot of unresolved tension between the two of them, but they don't actually do anything until Morgana Le Fay, who's, you know, villainous outside figure, bewitches Gawain into seeing a 
vision of the two of them having sex. Okay. And then Gawain goes and spills the beans. And then there's the whole thing. And then and and then they wind up actually doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's After. precipitated, it's precipitated by an outside force. Right. Okay. Um a common theme in most versions of the story is the inescapability of mortal failings. And and Lancelot and Guinevere's affair is the is the er archetype of that. It's like, no, this this is people are fallible. Even somebody like Lancelot, who is the the paragon of knighthood, people have failings and you you cannot escape them. In okay. in this adaptation, again, evil action from outside is required for that to happen. Like it all, it all could have been an an ideal. It could have all been a utopia, except for Morgan Le Fay working from outside to undo it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in this in this retelling, Arthur takes on the role of the Fisher King. Okay. Uh, he winds up being the one who's who gets healed by Percival with the Grail, just in time to take up arms against Morgana Le Fay and their son Mordred. Right. Spoiler alert: That's the whole thing from you know forever. And he and Lancelot reconcile on the battlefield, fighting against Mordred's army, which is not a scene in the original Grail cycle. In the original Grail cycle. Lancelot does not show up hmm. to help Arthur in that in that moment. Um, and in the original cycle, um, Guinevere and Lancelot end their days in monasteries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to undo the shame of of you know what they were responsible for. Sure, but here, uh, Lancelot shows up and exerts badassery. Right. And the two of them have their, you know, manful reconciliation, you know, before the inevitable death of Arthur at the hands of Mordred. So Clash of the Titans relates a modified version of the legend of Perseus in mm-hmm. which the hero literally rescues the princess Andromeda right. and marries her in the end. And kills her Cala... uh, it's not Caliban. Uh Calabos. Calabos, yeah. Um, it hangs very heavily on the original Greek themes of hubris. Don't get mm-hmm. cocky or the gods are going to punish your pride. Right. And features Harry Hamlin being very shirtless and athletic. Yes. Both of these stories harken back to traditional legends. Both of these stories focus on a very traditional ideal of masculine heroism. Mm-hmm. Arthur and Perseus are both clearly the good guy in their respective tales. Yes. Right triumphs over wrong in the end, and there's a very heavy emphasis on fighting physical heroism without any questioning of the moral imperatives involved in either story. Right. Right is right, wrong is wrong, the good guy wins, and the good guy wins primarily by being a big buff masculine fighter type. Okay. Mm-hmm. So moving on to 1982, we see the sword and the sorcerer opening on April 23rd, mm-hmm. Onan the barbarian on mm-hmm. May 14th, Beastmaster on August 20th, Ator the fighting eagle in, on September 14th. That was when it was released in Italy 
in the United States, it, it waited a year, came out in March of 83, uh, but I'm putting it here because, you know, zitgeist and timing. Sure. And then, and then, which we just finished talking about, the Dark Crystal opened on December 17th, 82. Mm-hmm. Now, Sword and the Sorcerer. Lee Horsley, of all the, of all the people to cast in the, in the, as the lead of a sword and sorcery film, Lee Horsley uh, plays a displaced prince turned mercenary who uses a magical three bladed sword that he can like point and magically launch. It launches. Yeah. Yeah. Two of the three blades can be, can be fired. Yeah. Like rockets. Inspiring, you know, any number of individuals in Dungeons and Dragons campaigns to try to come up with stats for it. I'm, sure. I, I know, like, because my friends and I did it too. Sure. Um, now he is seeking revenge on the man who killed his father and the sorcerer who helped him do it. He returns to the kingdom of his birth. And Lee Horsley, again, I maybe it's just me, but this, I, I don't. I, I don't I don't get the calculus of this, but Lee Horsley spends a good portion of the film shirtless, mm-hmm. uh, uses physical prowess and that magic sword of his to defeat the baddies. And he agrees to help the princess figure in the film in exchange for her sleeping with him. Wow. The depiction of this character doesn't quite go all the way to anti-hero, but he's he's no Arthur or Perseus. Maybe he's a skeezy kind of Han Solo, but he's still portrayed as ultimately heroic, mm-hmm. which wouldn't fly today. Right. Um, and yeah. So Conan the Barbarian, I guess less, less said about that from here, the better Conan the Barbarian. We've spent a bunch of time talking about this, but within yes. the context of, of what I'm talking about here, what's important is he's a hyper-masculine figure mm-hmm. written to fulfill John Milius's idea of an Ubermensch. Right. Whatever Nietzsche had to say, actually, like, be damned. Um, again, he's shirtless through much of the film. He right. succeeds through physical might against a sorcerous enemy, uh, this time notable for his hypnotic power over others. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Beastmaster. Where Conan played fast and loose with Robert E. Howard's most famous character, uh, the Beastmaster actually took a 1959 Andre Norton novel. Mm-hmm. and turned an SF story into a fantasy one. Whitewashes the main character, because Andre Norton originally wrote him as being coded as Native American. Oh, okay. Introduces a completely different plot. Like, just takes takes the central conceit and then builds a completely different plot around it. Mm-hmm. So Mark Singer plays a Perseus figure, a prince prophesied to be the death of a powerful bad guy, uh, and then the prince winds up being raised ignorant of his royal heritage. Uh, and he has the ability to communicate with animals. Right. Uh, the cynicism of Conan and the sword and the sorcerer is missing here. Dar, uh, the, the main character, is pretty much a Boy Scout. But he's he's, he's a little bit uh, like, again, you know, trying to parlay things into sex. But then he kind of backs off pretty quickly yeah yeah like he's, he, he tries but he doesn't he's not he's not quite yeah. such I mean, a she, dick about she it. rebukes him and he doesn't chase it down further yeah yeah so, okay yeah um but he's, he's still a shirtless muscular warrior dude 
Very. pitted against a sorcerer's bad guy and the cult of witches who support him. Rip Torn as the bad guy. Yeah. Which is Notably. ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, that's the ridiculous. Anyway, yes, so that's the ridiculous part. Okay. Also, Jan- John Amos with a top knot and no shirt. Yes. Also the ridiculous. Ridic- yes. Yeah. Very. So now, uh, Ator the Fighting Eagle mm-hmm. of the 82 releases, this is hands down the shittiest. <laughs> like, anybody who's heard of this one now is most likely familiar with it because of its run on Mystery Science Theater 3000 in 2018 mm-hmm. or on Rift Tracks. It's a mess. It's just, it's an absolute shit show. Ator is another child of prophecy. Mm-hmm. This trope had a real run at the start of the decade. Uh, who grows up ignorant of his heritage, Natch. Uh, winds up fighting to rescue his beloved from the clutches of an evil cult. There's a note of cynicism uh, because he winds up finding out that his warrior mentor has uh, trained him to defeat the bad guy so that mentor can take the big bad's place. Okay. But Ator himself is still a good guy. Capital G, capital G. Mm -hmm. Um, He's shirtless a lot again. Right. Uh, he's portrayed by a very muscular actor Miles O'Keefe, I'm who's most famous for playing, here. yeah, who's most famous for playing Tarzan in '81. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this story, he narrowly avoids being seduced by a witch and gets fought over by a tribe of Amazons. Wow! Now, <laughs> when this came out in the U.S. in 1983, I saw it in the theater. You're the one. Yeah. Well, well no. No, no, there were plenty of us in the theater that day. Uh, and and I didn't go alone because I was only eight. My my dad, the whole family went to see this one. My dad had been the one like, no, no, no we got to go see this one. In wow. about that tone of voice. In sure. about that tone of voice. Uh, I was too young to understand so bad it's good. Right. So I didn't understand why my dad got such a kick out of it. We left the theater with him laughing <laughs> and me completely confused. <laughs> Like what? What? Like at eight, I was going, "What did we just watch?" Like, oh my god! Wow. All right, so eighty-three. Okay. Brawl mm-hmm. in July, Fire and Ice in August, and Deathstalker in September. Okay. Brawl. Literally, the story of a prince rescuing a princess from a terrible monster. Mm-hmm. The monster is named the Beast. The magic weapon the prince goes on a quest to find in order to defeat the monster winds up not being used to kill the monster at all, mm-hmm. but rather as a fancy cirque saw. Also, it's called a glaive when it isn't a fucking glaive. It's a shocker-sized shuriken that he controls through telekinesis. Yeah, like that was my are... daughter's first objection too. <laughs> Your daughter will go far in life. Yes. I, I have I have issues with, with this thing, but that's beside the point because the movie is a dark fairy tale. Um, there are some semi-grim dark elements. Uh, the, pris, the prince enlists criminals to help him, and they kind of turn out to be mostly okay guys who he promises their freedom to. Right. Um, the Cyclops knows he's doomed. Uh, the whole color right. palette is subdued and cold. But nonetheless, a Dudley Do-Right prince succeeds in the end, rescuing his princess. The beast is defeated, and good triumphs over evil. You're not going to mention. You're not mm. going to mention the uh, the sorcerer. 
No, Short not in stature, this stature, long in ability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's, yeah. Okay, true. Oh, yeah. So the evil in question also is stated to be an alien dictator who rules multiple worlds through fear. Yes. Is that just me or does that sound like the USSR is viewed through a Reaganite lens? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got the seductiveness of Tulsa Doom doing something similar with, you know, socialism. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got, yeah, the many, many of the bad guys are cutouts for the the communist menace on some level or another. Oh yeah. So that's crawl. Mm-hmm. Fire and ice. Ralph Bakshi, one more time. Mm-hmm. Uh this time working with Frank Frazetta. Um and what do I know and, that name. Uh he is a very well known fantasy artist uh who did the covers of a whole bunch of paperback editions of Conan the Barbarian stories. Oh okay yeah. Uh one of his most famous uh paintings is the the Death Dealer, uh which is a uh big muscular figure on top of a horse with a with a big shield, a gigantic battle axe helmet that hides their face anyway sure a friend of mine uh one of his one of his longtime uh you know things on his on his wish list was he wanted a copy of of that painting and his his wife found him a print of it and nice. it was like huge big deal for his birthday yeah um but so uh bakshi and, and frazetta worked together on on this one and an evil sorceress and her son are pushing the world into an ice age their forces kidnap a princess who the sorceress plans to have her son marry. Okay. In an interesting departure from the mold so far, the princess here manages to be more proactive in managing her own escape, Mm -hmm. but it still falls to a couple of muscle bound heroes without shirts to fully save the day. Right. So it's still hyper-masculinized male figures, you know, pulling out the win in the end. Um, Deathstalker. <clears throat> I've I've saved this one for last for several reasons. So Lee Horsley's character in the Sword and the Sorcerer is pretty skeezy by today's standards, but mm-hmm. holy shit, Deathstalker is worse. To quote the Boston Globe, a cauldron brimming with stale filmmaking, stone-faced acting, and primitive editing. Aside from the nasty rapes, I lost count after six. Jesus. And the endless violence. Deathstalker drips with derivative dullness. The movie is so bad that the director can't even give you a credible decapitation. <laughs> so what 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 will kill your faith in humanity is they went on to make like at least two more Deathstalker films after this. But wow. The titular hero, that's literally that is his name, Deathstalker. Mm-hmm. And generally every male figure in the film is a rapist. There's a harem of enslaved women used as a major plot point. Mm-hmm. The only marginally self-actualized female character wears a cloak and a bikini as her whole costume and gets murdered after having sex with the protagonist. Naturally. The main character is a hyper-masculine, muscled, shirtless swordsman, and in an interesting departure from the ultimately pro-social structure endings of the other entries on this list. Mm-hmm. Deathstalker chooses at the end of this film to destroy the magic items he's been sent to retrieve and then leaves an entire kingdom rulerless for no reason other than I'm not interested in ruling. 
so it's basically Conan, but even more misogynistic and with nihilism as the central attempt at philosophy <laughs> rather than Nietzscheanism. Oh, it's wow. a 14-year-old edgelord's idea of badass. Right. I, I see this as being like you actually get to finish a a an arc for your D&D first edition advanced team. Yeah. And this is what you do instead of like, you know, create a keep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bad, ugly movie. It sounds like it. And as the most extreme example of its type, I think it's most emblematic mm-hmm. of the issue driving the sudden boom in sword and sorcery movies. Now, real fast, sword and sorcery as a subgenre of fantasy is generally defined as a milieu in which magic is shifty, usually evil. The hero of the story is a warrior or a rogue type who wins victory through forthright physical prowess. Strength is usually key, but cleverness and cat-like reflexes also figure in some stories. Okay. Uh, the Grey Mouser is, is a key example of the latter. Um, Howard is the father of this genre. Conan mm-hmm. stories are the trope codifiers in most cases. Okay. So the question is, why was sword and sorcery a thing in the early 80s? TLDR, the 70s were a terrible time for American exceptionalism and the post-war concept of masculinity. Okay. 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 So before nine, between, sorry, between 1945 and 1970, the U.S. economy grew dramatically, right. leaps and bounds. Right. Uh, the U.S. held 40% of the world's wealth by the start of the 70s. Mm-hmm. As the largest partner in NATO, the U.S. held immense military might. Okay. It had been American industrial power that had provided material for the defeat of the Axis in World War II. Mm-hmm. And then it had been American wealth that had largely rebuilt Europe as part of the Marshall Plan. Right. The dominant cultural paradigm was one of American ascendance tempered by the fear of a nuclear-armed USSR. Yeah. The Korean, the Korean War wasn't an untrammeled victory, but Americans could look at it as a win against communist aggression. Right. At the very least, you pushed them back. Yeah. American cars were sold around the world. American right. grain fed millions worldwide. American steel rebuilt the infrastructure of Europe and much of the rest of the world. Within the U.S., the standard of living improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. Now, needs to be said, the lion's share of gains went to white households. Post-war economic policy was explicitly racist in who had helped move up the economic ladder. Yes. But there were real gains in wages and buying power across the board. Yes, there were. Okay. Popular images from the time, from film, television, and advertising, depict a consistent image of an idealized nuclear family. You talked about the Fantastic, Fantastic Four as a Four. response to this. Yep. In which a father figure in a suit and fedora provides for and watches over an aproned, smiling wife and mm-hmm. one or more cherubic children. Right suburbia exploded thanks to government policies designed to build and populate massive tracts full of single family homes. Mm -hmm. If you were a cishet white male American, you could easily see yourself as sitting at the top of the heap globally. Starting in the late sixties, that started to change. Right. In 1973, the American psychiatric association removed homosexuality from the DSM. 
Stonewall had put LGBTQ issues on the front pages of newspapers across the country. Mm-hmm. In 1976, WNET in New York hosted a special outreach program that included frank discussion of, quote, legal, social, and religious services for gay men and lesbians in the tri-state area. It's an early example of public media discussing homosexuality and involving gay and lesbian people in that discussion. Okay. That's 76. By 1980, 120 of the U.S.'s biggest companies had adopted non-discrimination clauses in their employment contracts to recognize gay and lesbian employees, and 40 cities had similarly enacted anti-discrimination ordinances. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about this when I did the soap episodes with our guest, um, uh, Amanda Lanham, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the educated, um, mm-hmm. she, uh, she and I talked about, uh, Anita Bryant and the, the huge backlash against, uh, you know, putting in, um, legislation that says stop picking on gay people. Mm-hmm. And Anita Bryant and how she ascended at this exact time. Yeah. 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 Um, so now in the 1970s, uh, we wind up seeing fashions that are rooted in the mod look mm-hmm. that lead to men wearing lots of bright colors and following softer lines in the clothes they're wearing. Yeah, there's a little there's a push in in music toward androgyny and in modeling toward androgyny. Yes. Yes. Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, Elton John, and David Bowie mm-hmm. were leading edge figures in pushing against masculine paradigms in their performances and public persona. Yep. <clears throat> Robert Plant wore a lot of women's blouses as part of his ensemble mm-hmm. in order to show off his chest. Right. Um Disco. <laughs> the whole genre and movement of disco was rooted in gay, trans, non-white culture. Right. And within disco culture, there was an explosion of experimentation with androgyny and gender identity. And as a as backlash, there was an explosion in Chicago. Yes. As we've discussed before, disco freaked cishet white people the fuck out in yes. a really big way. Yes. So... <laughs> And now we get to talk about second wave feminism. Well, before we do, um, I I just want to go back to the Anita uh, Bryant stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at that time, you had like this uh, explosion of awareness and, uh, frankly, a willingness toward acceptance uh, of uh, gay men, specifically gay men. Yeah. And then Anita Bryant comes up. So it's not a man who's masculinely defending masculinity. It's a woman who's narrowly mm-hmm. defining masculinity and quote defending it um and I, yeah. I think that's interesting that it's a woman doing the fighting for the men and for masculinity and same thing with Phyllis Schlafly and her bullshit um and in fact mm-hmm. the the men who are standing up uh I'm gonna put in finger quotes again for masculinity um yeah. are your televangelists and so which mm-hmm. are Mm-hmm. essentially the priestly class that you see in half of these sword and sorcery movies um <laughs> demagogic that's, religious oh, wow yeah that's and a, so that's you have i hadn't even yeah found, but yeah and, and you funny. have so you have these women who are middle-aged women and you mm-hmm. have these uh 
religious snake oil salesmen um, as the ones who are standing up for masculinity in any way that gains traction. I'm not saying there weren't others, but those are the two groups Mm -hmm. where they really, really struck back against uh, queer America and set things back by quite a bit. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting to see that like in the 80s, you start to get into like hyper masculine shit. Yeah. But in the 70s, it was older white women um, that were planting the flag of what is good and proper masculinity and what it's what isn't. And I'm not saying they were doing mm-hmm. good work or even the Lord's work, but uh, I would say <laughs> that they were the ones no. that were out and proud about being out and proud of masculinity. Yeah. In, well, in and the I face think of people actually being out and proud of who they were. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's that's a meaningful uh, uh, note. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's there's an element of generationalism mm-hmm. involved that, like you know, Robert Plant. Look at look at the difference in in oh yeah, you know, age and outlook between all the guys that I just mentioned: Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, Elton John, David Bowie. Look at look at the difference in in their age and mm-hmm. circumstances mm-hmm. to Anita Bryant, right? You know, and and a figure like Anita Bryant had so much invested in the previous generation's idea of gender roles, right? That like she's she's defending masculinity because if that gets blown up, her position within that within that hierarchy within that that structure correct is threatened like you know yeah uh, cats and dogs living, living together, together. Mass hysteria. Yeah. you know but again it's it's mommy has to fight for me is kind yeah. of this the subtext little, there so weird yeah yeah so it's interesting to, to see that develop or it, it makes even more sense to see it develop into i've got abs and i've yeah. got ferrets and here yeah. we go <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I yeah. like that. Um, so second wave feminism just piled mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. with all of that. Uh, starting in the early 60s, the feminist movement shifted focus from suffrage and legal equality, which was mm-hmm. first wave feminism, to include much broader issues like gender roles in the home, right. sexual and reproductive freedom, workplace equality. So this this is all stuff that isn't codified in law, but is part of the structure of these institutions. Um, you know, I mean, it wasn't until at the earliest the seventies. Um, trying to remember, yeah, uh, domestic violence and the very existence of marital rape were issues that they brought up, right? You know, um, and so. It's, yeah, I it's, mean, you're you're redefining you know, the family uh, unit and family responsibilities, yeah. which absolutely takes away from, frankly, undue power of the men in the relationship. Oh yeah, you're it's, you're it's, on some level equalizing things. Oh and, yeah, and yeah. that's that's terrifying mm-hmm. from a certain point of view. And so, um. You know, we see multiple men's colleges in the United States merge with women women's colleges. They go co-ed. Oh yeah. Title IX got passed in 1972, which right. mandated the funding of women's educational opportunities. 
most visibly, but not only in the arena of athletics, mm-hmm. uh, divorce laws across the country started to shift. Yeah, California went no fault in, yeah. in, the, in the 1970s, early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that is this opening up of these, again, systemic and kind of pattern on the wallpaper kind of kind of gender issues that like you know if you'd grown up in the 1950s that was this was just the way things were and having somebody actually like grab you by the forelock and go uh no that's that's let's look at how that's inherently unfair right you know it would would be would be could be definitely Mm -hmm. this this kind of like foundational attack on on identity and on on like well what is what does anything mean anymore you know if i can't if i can't come home and you know pound a six-pack and smack my wife you know what what the fuck man yeah what's the point of being a man yeah you know and so to a certain segment of the population both male and female data bryant hi these forces looked like they were eroding the very concept of masculinity and the place of men sure at the same time, this perceived diminution of men coincided with a diminution of the United States' position on the world stage mm-hmm. while we were staring down the barrel of possible nuclear annihilation by the USSR. Right. And, and, and the USSR is, on some levels, it's it's that weird, it occupies both kind of things. Um, on some levels, it is teeming with bristly hair on the back and it's you know ape like and it's 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 a bear it's 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 very man very man yeah and at the same time there is a feminine aspect to it when when spoken of it pejoratively yeah yeah oh yeah well the 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 collectivist Mm -hmm. aspects of the culture right are are denigrated in in feminizing terms and so i think now is probably a logical place for us to stick a pin in this okay uh before i go into talking about how the 60s and 70s sucked for the u.s on the world stage (laughs) yeah um but at this point Mm -hmm. what have you what have you gleaned or or Um, what are you going to carry well, I got a feeling this, this that everything so we're going to see in the movies of the 80s is going to largely be a rubber band and desperate attempt to reclaim a uh, space that they thought that was due to them and was lost uh, mm-hmm. by by hypermasculine moviegoers and directors. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that John Milius would find a lot of work in 1980s. <laughs> Yeah, what I added to the script was mostly a lot of guns. Yeah. I'll never forget doing the research for Conan. That quote was like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm I'm looking forward to uh, the next episode when when we start to see that rubber banding happening. Yeah. In, in light of what we're about to talk about in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But also, it, it is interesting to me that two of the biggest champions for masculinity in the seventies weren't men, mm-hmm. um, and and how, on its own, that could be a kind of an emasculating process. Yeah, 
So, yeah. Weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, what you suggesting for people to read? Um, what I'm going to suggest that people read uh, is actually go back and find uh, some of the original Robert E. Howard Conan stories. Oh, okay. Because um, while they are not any more enlightened than John Milius's film, mm-hmm. um, they at least have, in my opinion, a more coherent worldview, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And they are a remarkable example of very propulsive storytelling. Um, and and while Conan is still a very masculinized or hypermasculinized figure, the way in which that gets expressed by a writer in the 1930s mm-hmm. is very different from the way it gets depicted on the screen in the 1980s. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's worth reading and thinking about that kind of change in characterization. Yeah. So that's my recommendation. How about you? I'm going to actually recommend that people watch red Sonia. Hmm. Um, it was, uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing. If you look at the production history of Red Sonia, it's an interesting thing, uh, because of Arnold Schwarzenegger's involvement. Um, but if you look at the, the issues involved in Red Sonia, um, mm-hmm. you get into a lot of what we're talking about because your protagonist is a woman, mm-hmm. um, but she's a woman doing very masculine things in a very masculine way, masculine mm-hmm. coded, at least at that time. And yet the crux of the whole issue is very gender norm and uh, biological sex based in that, you know, the, the orb that you got to grab and all that kind of stuff. If a man touches it, they're fucked. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the, the gender reveal party at the end with the, uh, with the queen. Um, So, and also tonally, it feels very similar to Beastmaster for me. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So, I would agree with that. But yeah, I'm going to recommend... Um, no, I'm sorry. It feels very similar to Krull for me. I apologize. But also to be okay. Spencer, to be verbally right. honest, those yeah. three, there's a layer of silliness and camp to to each of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, I think it's worth re-looking at, especially in light of what we're talking about, um, because it specifically addresses the issues of masculinity and femininity. At mm-hmm. least as best as it can, in a in a very um, structural, mm-hmm. essentialist. Also, oh, very much way. so, very much so. So yeah, yeah. So, cool. yeah. So that's my rec. Very cool. Uh, if people want to find you, can they or are you? Uh, no, right now I am a, I am a shadow in the warp, as yeah. I as I've said before. Um. <laughs> But uh, we collectively, of course, can be found at www.geekhistorytime.com. We still have an account on Twitter at uh, Geek History Time uh, there. Um, And where can you be found, sir? Uh, Honestly, uh, I'm not sure when this recording will hit. I think it'll be after our February show. Um, so for right now, just keep an eye out for, uh, 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 keep an eye out for capital punishment in Sacramento area. 
Um, I think we'll be back at Luna's and then we might bounce back to Henry's seeing how we did in February. Um, but that's mostly where you can find me. I've been fairly inactive and inert on the social medias, uh, other than to share what my children are cooking, but, uh, that's, that's not for you to find. So, so there you um, go. Yeah. But, uh, for geek history of time, um, I'm Damien Harmony and I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, Keep rolling 20s.